thank you, Ben, for taking opening with prayer for us. I appreciate that. In fact, while I was sitting here, I've been thinking about doing this, but after listening to you share about Josh and Jolene again this morning, and my wife probably has already done this <laughs> at some time, but I just, I fired off a, a message on Messenger to Randy and Janet down there because their daughter's in the same situation because of a, she's making progress very, very slowly, but she is making progress. Uh, as they call it, they used to call it tiny, huge steps. <laughs> but uh, like when you're talking about just trying her to get her open, her open her eyes. And I just kind of shared that with them, that we've been praying for this family for a couple months now, and uh, I know they would want to. Peg didn't want to connect them right off the bat because it's real easy to say, hey, you know, this is what our daughter's done, and this is what we've done, and, you know, because you never know exactly what Holland was sharing. You never exactly know your circumstance is going to be exactly like somebody else's. It's what God's planned for you to deal with. But uh, I appreciate your sharing about that. This morning we are going to continue looking at inheritance. We're, we're, we're doing a study on promises. And so as we're looking at these promises from God, we've been looking for the last few weeks at inheritance. And one of the things that we are told by some people is that we inherit the right to rule or the right to reign with Christ. And we're going to look at some passages today that are going to teach us that that's not the case. Now, we're going to end today, and I want to get these off the pulpit. I don't want to keep, I've got some other books. I pulled some other books from my library off. We're eventually going to end up over in Matthew 25 at the end of the day, and I want to look at what that's about. It's not on your outline. It's extra that I added after the fact. But this is, uh, I'll just tell you who these guys are. Tony Evans. I don't know if anybody knows who Tony Evans is. Uh, Oak Cliff Bible Church down in, uh, I think it's in Dallas. Yes, Dallas, Texas. Okay. And I've read different things by Tony Evans, and I've been listening to him off and on for over 30 years. Uh, but this is uh, Tony Evans on loss at the judgment seat of Christ. Judgment seat of Christ is only for believers. No unsaved people stand at the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, And so this is what he's talking about. He's quoting Matthew 25, and he says, The evil servant not only lost what he had, but he was judged and cast out of the master's presence. And we need to talk about this because most people assume the slave was condemned to hell. But this is not a parable of heaven and hell. Jesus was not talking about people's eternal destiny, but about rewards or lack thereof in the kingdom. The problem is how terms like outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth relate to loss of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat immediately precedes the setting up of Christ's millennial kingdom, which is the context here in Matthew 25. And for 1,000 years, Jesus Christ will shine as the noonday sun as he rules over this earth. The evil slave in the parable was cast into outer darkness in the kingdom. Notice that, cast out outer darkness in the kingdom. That's actually kind of a contradiction there. Where there will be gnashing of teeth, an expression that means profound misery and regret. Jesus is saying that there will be profound regret for the unfaithful believer who has nothing to offer him when he comes back. That person will not be allowed to be a participant in the kingdom, but will be in darkness outside looking in at the millennium party, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Tony Evans. 
I've got other quotes from other writers that I didn't pull. I, you don't want to stand up here and listen to these all day. This guy's since passed away. Floyd Barackman, he taught at a Bible school out in New York. I, I've owned this book for closing in on 40 years now. Uh, and there's some good things out of this, but this is what he says on the Lord's denial of intimate fellowship. While the parable seems to say that the servant was disowned and banished, it does not necessarily mean this. In a similar parable, the Lord Jesus will slay his enemies. That's in Luke 19. We will look at that before we're done. I prefer the view that the servant was not allowed to attend the festive celebration honoring his master's return. This portrays the denial of intimate fellowship with Christ, which the more faithful will enjoy. Again, our evil works will limit our capacity for this fellowship. And lastly, by a writer in a book honoring Charles Ryrie, which all I can say is I think if Charles Ryrie would have read this article, I wonder how he would have responded to this, uh, knowing some of the things that I've read by him on this matter. But this person says, the believer who is unfaithful to the Lord will not receive crowns, may will be addressed by Christ as worthless slave, and will not reign with him. Their salvation is secure, but their rewards are not. So, will not and will not reign with him. And that was by, it's a compendium of a group of authors writing a, uh, they call a fest shrift, a book in honor of some other Bible teacher, and they do that for them later in life oftentimes. We're going to start over here in Revelation chapter 2. We've hit these verses in uh, Seems, I keep wanting to say, it wasn't that long ago, but it's when we were meeting out at Butler's out there uh, on the hillside this spring uh, in when it allowed us to be meeting and outdoors, and it was very nice doing that on a day like this. I'm glad we're indoors with air conditioning, but think of all the saints that through the centuries have lived and gathered in hot, hot conditions. Anyway, but we looked at these verses before, but notice with me in Revelation chapter 2, and it says in verse 26, And he who overcomes and who keeps my deeds or works until the end. Now let's stop and look at two things here. First of all, he who overcomes. Let's take a look at who this is. Let's go to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Who writes 1 John, by the way? John. Who wrote Revelation? John. Okay. So we have the same writer, same guy. And he's going to use this word. This word, we get the word, um, we come back up here and see if I can put it. We have the, the verb nikao in here, and this is the victory, the Nike, okay? Uh, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about this word. And so in 1 John chapter 5, I want to go back up and begin with verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born from God. Whoever loves the Father loves someone born from him. And by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commands. For this is the love of God that we keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. Verse 4, for whatever or whoever is born from God overcomes or is victorious with regard to the world. And this is the victory that has been victorious with regard to the world or overcome the world, our faith. 
And who is the one who overcomes the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Why is that? We've answered this question in the past, but just in a nutshell, why is this overcoming? Why is believing overcoming? Because you're overcoming the world. Why are you overcoming the world? Because when you actually tell people that they need to believe in Jesus Christ alone, they look at your cross-eyed and think, you're nuts. What planet did you come from? And the Bible says, well, not from here. Yeah, I was born in this world, but the Bible does tell us we're not from this world. And so when we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, when we believe who the Bible is, the world doesn't get that. Now, you've got a lot of people out there that kind of listen to you and they go, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. But then the minute you tell them he's absolutely God, has always been God, never was a time that he wasn't God, they're going, wait a minute. Or when you tell them that everything he did on the cross, what his death on the cross for our sins, his burial, his resurrection, that's all you need to believe for salvation, they go, wait a minute. See, they've got wait-a-minutes in here because who they believe Jesus Christ to be is different than what the Bible says. And whenever you mess around with who Jesus Christ is, you have to change the gospel. you got to adjust the gospel because are you really going to believe in person that is actually less than what the Bible said he is? No. So when you believe in Jesus Christ, when you believe that he's the Son of God, Son of God means that he is God. If you have a question with that, ask me later. We'll go over that. We have an instant where he calls himself Son of God, and the Jews pick up stones to stone him, because that was blasphemy to say you're the Son of God, because that was claiming to be you were God. And the Jews knew that well. And so when you understand that, that's what it meant to be an overcomer. You're a winner. You're a victor, because you have believed a message that the world puts down, that the world says no. Or the world goes, yeah, I believe that, and! Or I was even going through another passage of Scripture the other day where they go, yes, that's a good thing for you, but the people on the other side of the world, they may believe something else, and that's good for them, and no! That's what Peter says, there is no other way, there is no other name. In fact, Jesus Christ himself said that. He is the way. The truth and the life. It's my favorite t-shirt to wear. I love that. I just It says that on the back of it, actually. But I love that t-shirt because I love that verse over there in John uh, chapter 14. So this is what an overcomer is. Now let's go back over here to Revelation chapter 2. That's what an overcomer is. Now there's a second part to this, to this statement that he brings in here. I want to go back up to verse 18 just to kind of catch the background for this. It says, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira, we're in Revelation 2.18, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, his feet are burnished like bronze. I know your works and your love and faith and service and perseverance, that your, that your deeds of late are greater than at the first. <clears throat> and he's not talking specifically to the church. He's speaking to the, to the angel of the church, which is a reference to the messenger of the church, to the, to the leader, the pastor in this church. That's who he's talking about. And he's addressing him. And we know that because it's a singular you in these cases. It's a singular, he's speaking to a singular person. But this person has responsibility for what's going on in the church. And he says, but I have against you that you tolerate, that you put up with the woman Jezebel. She calls herself a prophetess. <clears throat> 
and she teaches and leads my slaves astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And they gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Then you go on down, you can continue to read this. What you're talking about is that he has permitted, this leader in the church has permitted this woman to be teaching in the church. She says she's a prophet of God, and she's telling these people it is okay to be engaged in these other activities. And if you put this in the context of what's going on with this church, what they're really introducing with the eating of things offered to idols and these, these sacrifices, they're really introducing a sacrificial system back into the church and saying it's okay for believers to participate in this. It's where the church begins to say, it's not enough that Christ died for us in the past. We have to have something regularly going on. Let's call it the Mass. And let's crucify Christ every week. It'll be an unbloody crucifixion, but it'll be a repeated crucifixion every time we partake of this. Now, then look down with me with that little background. I'm trying to do this very quickly to explain this part. So we'll go back down to verse 26 where we started up. To him who is victorious or overcomes. And then we have keeps my deeds. Now, some Bibles translate that word keep, do. There is no legitimate reason for translating it do. The word keep means you keep it safe. I've used the illustration before. My wife, I, I haven't been wearing it lately. I've been trying to use the clock on my phone. But I'm a watch guy and I'm still missing my watch. But my wife gave me years ago this really nice Timex watch that I still like. And I use that. But you know what? There have been a few couple of times that I was with a bunch of people and I was going to go run. And I don't know about you, but when I run, I sweat like crazy. So I take it off and I give it to somebody else. And I say, here, would you keep this for me? Now, I don't want what I'm not saying. I'm not telling them to do something. I'm not, keep it safe. I'm not telling them to keep it for them for the rest of their life. I'm just, you, they get the idea. You keep this. You guard this watch. Because I don't want it to get all sweaty and crudded up. This is exactly what he is talking about here. He who keeps my works until the end. What does that mean? It means this person guards the work of Christ. It means this person, when somebody else comes along and says, yes, Jesus did that, but, <clears throat> or, and we need to, and they add other things to this, and they mess around with the work of Christ. They alter it. Perhaps I was picking on Catholicism a little bit ago, but going back to that, it's not enough. Catholicism teaches that the death of Christ is good for you up to the moment you're saved, up to the moment you believe. But after you believe, you need, then to, you need then these other sacraments to help you stay saved. And we've told you this before. In Catholicism, you come under the curse of the church if you claim that you know you have eternal life. It's called an anathema in the Catholic Church. It's an anathema to claim that you know for certain that you have eternal life. Despite the fact that right in 1 John chapter 5, John says, I wrote to you that you might know that you have eternal life. So when he's talking about this, this is very important in the context of this church where they're messing around with the work of Christ and they're introducing this woman, this prophetess is coming in and teaching this other stuff. That for those who are an overcomer because they believe, What's the second part of what it meant to really be an overcomer is he adds in here. They're the person that guards the work of Christ. 
Are you a, are, have you really believed in Jesus Christ if you're going to be wishy-washy on the gospel? If you're going to be going, well, that's good for us, but those people on the other side of the world that have never heard that they, that they worship the spirit in that tree or that stream, if you've ever listened to Josh and Faye share that stuff, that's good enough for them <clears throat> as long as they're sincere baloney. They are responsible and answerable to the very same God of heaven that you and I are responsible and answerable to. And the work of Christ saves us and all other people on the planet through faith. And so, he says here, to he who overcomes and guards my works unto the end. And I think it's important to point those two things out. So you understand what you're talking about are people who are believers. You're not talking about a special class of believers. That's what some people do. They take the overcomer here and they say the overcomer is like a super class of Christian. Which is exactly what it would be. Because I want to know, are, do any of you think that you as a Christian are really a lot better than anybody else here? And you really see most Christians are failing, but I'm not. I'm doing well. I would look at this, and I think if most Christians were honest, there's going to be like no Christians that are going to actually succeed if this is talking about super Christian. I was going to say like less than a percent, but there's not even going to be less than a percent. There are some people that have been very noble, but I don't think that they really, if you really could look at their heart, which is what it comes down to, those secret things of the heart that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 4, that's where maybe the rubber meets the road. And so he goes on, I will give authority over the nations. It doesn't say rule here. He says, I'm giving him authority over the nations. What does he do? He shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I have received authority from my father. And, I and then he goes on, he says, and I'm going to give him something else. But he says, what? He says, I'm going to give him authority over the nations. And like he received a rod, we looked at that Wednesday night. For those of you that were with us Wednesday night, uh, we saw that over in Psalm 2, a statement of worship. You have this, he has this rod of iron and he dashes the nations. That's part of his reign. You know, I think it was Thursday night we actually looked at that. Getting my Bible studies mixed up. But anyway, he says, we're going to be granted that same authority. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are going to, Christ is going to share with you the authority he has received from the Father. Is that not an amazing thing? And he doesn't rest it on performance. He doesn't rest it on the fact that you or I have been a better Christian than somebody else. That I've had more victory than you. How much victory do you have to have to be an overcomer? Sounds kind of like that question sometimes when you talk to unsaved people and you share the gospel and they go, well, I think if you're just good enough and you say, well, how many good works do you have to do? See, it's very subjective. How many sins can you get away with? Well, it'd be the same thing here. How many good works, how good do you have to be as a Christian to be an overcomer? If we're going to make an overcomer that, but that's not what an overcomer is. Aren't you thankful that God actually had the same writer that uses the word overcomer here, define an overcomer for us in 1 John. I'm so thankful for that. So I don't have to listen to somebody tell, well, I listen to people tell me that, but I'm going, they're wrong. They just need to read. And I've heard them go, oh, John's talking about a different thing in 1 John that he's talking about over here. And I want to know why. They tell you that, but I've never heard them tell me why he's telling me a different thing. 
And so here's this authority. This is the authority. I want you to look at another one with me. Revelation chapter 3. Just over the next chapter. At the end of the chapter. Make it easy to get there. One word, believe. And it's not even really a work. They ask for a work, but he tells them. But Paul Paul says, it's not even work. Believing's not a work. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. To him who doesn't work but believes. Yes, thank you. John 6. So Revelation chapter 3, look with me at verse 21. He who overcomes. We already saw what an overcomer is. It's a person who's believed in Jesus Christ. Contrary to the fact that the world leans on you and tries to tell you, don't believe in him. Or you can believe in the Jesus we tell you is okay to believe in. A different kind of Jesus. A similar Jesus even. Nope. You believe in the Jesus of the Bible. And what he did. He who overcomes, I will give to sit down with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. You see what he's granting to us? He is granting to you and I for believing in him. Not for being performers. Not for being people that did great, that did better. For people that broke the four-minute mile in spirituality, whatever that would look like. No, we're talking about people that just believed in Jesus Christ. He grants us not only authority, but he grants us to sit down with him on his throne. Look at a contrast to this. I think I have this in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20. If you're following along the outline, you're going to realize I am so off the outline this morning. But in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4, He's going to talk about the thousand years. The thousand years is the first part of his kingdom. Luke, in, over in the book of Luke, Luke records for us that of his kingdom there's no end. But there's a thousand year beginning stretch of this kingdom. And in connection with that, it says in verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. They were the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus. Now, up to that point, we could go, okay, that sounds like us. But because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast, not something I have to worry about because I'm not the beast isn't going to show up until I'm gone, so I can't worship him, number one. Number two, or they have not, or his image. Again, not a thing I have to worry about. And have not received the mark on their forehead or upon their hand. Again, not something I have to worry about because I won't be here when that goes into play. It's not our main thing to teach on this morning, but it's not mine. It says, and they came to life. Why? Because they'd been beheaded. They'd been killed. Now, how many Christians have you known in your life that have died a quiet, peaceful life and have never been beheaded? My grandmothers, my grandfather. I think of first person I ever knew like this was a, a lady that babysat my little sister. When I were growing up, as my mom taught a ladies' Bible study, her name was Mrs. Brown, and they came in and they found her in the morning. She was just sitting in a rocking chair, quietly in the living room, just passed away during in the evening, like that. 
She wasn't beheaded. I'm sorry, but my grandparents, Mrs. Brown, they don't get to sit on thrones and reign because they weren't beheaded. But that's what these people are that are granted the right to be to, to reign with Christ because they're not us. This is a whole different group of people because they're sitting on, what does it say? They're sitting on thrones. What, what is that singular or plural? Plural. Plural, multiple thrones. Where, does it say we get to sit on Christ's thrones, plural? No. It says we sit with him on his throne. Which sounds kind of odd to us, because we think, how does multiple people sit on a throne? I don't know what this is going to look like. I think that there's, it's, I think to some degree there's a little bit of figurative language being used here. Because if you've got millions of Christians through the history of the church, I don't know how that throne's going to accommodate all those, but I think what he's saying, obviously, is you have the right to actually be one that sits on this throne. If you've never gone to Mary Hill, the museum down on the river, down, down south of Goldendale, Queen, oh, I can't remember her name, Maria, I believe, of Romania. I'm probably botching her name. But Sam Hill, she gave to Sam Hill some stuff from when she reigned over there, and one of them is, is a throne. And it's a throne that's kind of got a big box that she sits in, and there are two seats attached on either side of it, that they're a part of that throne, that she could at any time grant somebody else to sit with her on her throne, on the right or on the left. And when I saw that, I thought, oh, that is a nice little illustration in a very small way of the fact that Christ grants us the right to not crowd in there and sit on his lap, sit on this knee, and you squeeze, I'll squeeze over here. No, that that the throne is designed to accommodate others. It's not multiple thrones. It is all considered a throne. And not just anybody can come up and take a seat on one of those other places. It's granted to them to sit with her, and in this case, granted to sit with him. So we're given authority, number one. Number two, we are given to sit with him on his throne, distinct from what he's going to do with other people in the future. Now, from here then, I'm going to fast uh, go move forward to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. And in the first chapter, we were introduced to four living beings. Book of Ezekiel calls these four beings cherubs. We find them doing the same thing there, same thing here, same description. And we have four cherubs around the throne. They're called living beings here. And we're also seeing 24 elders. 24 elders. Now I believe these I believe these elders are representative of the church. They're not reigning at this moment in time. They have another function at this time, but I want you to see what they say. If you look with me in verse, we're going to put in we have these elders again in verse 8. Let's look at it. It says, "And when he had taken the book, that is the lamb." Now by the way, a lot of this is figurative. If you went into heaven and saw this, is Jesus literally a lamb? One of your kids, is Jesus a lamb? What's your name? What? Hunter. Is Jesus a lamb? No, he's not. He's not an animal. That's right. He's a... That's right. And if you look back up here in the context, when it, when it refers to him up here, it refers to him as... Um, let's. I'm just trying to find my verse. I looked at this the other day. Um, it also calls him, by the way, look in verse 
5, it says, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the, the tribe of Judah, the root of David. So wait, is he, a, is he like a morphine creature? First he's a lamb, and then he morphs into a lion? No. They're, these are all figurative of who he of Jesus is and what Jesus can do. We all get that, right? So likewise, the elders are also figurative of what's going on. Same thing with you got, well, look, look in verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, the lamb standing as if it had recently been slain or freshly slain, having seven horns. You ever seen a lamb with seven horns? Much less, it goes on, it goes, and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Is that literally what the spirit is? Is the spirit seven eyes that are up there? And if you went back to chapter 4, the spirit's seven torches. But what it's doing is it's giving pictures of things to, to illustrate what's going on up there. It's not giving us a literal picture that John says, this is exactly the way it is. If I took my Polaroid and took this picture, this is exactly what heaven looks like. Jesus is a lamb. Then he morphs into a lion. And the spirit's up there like torch. He's seen these things to teach him something. And likewise with the elders. By the way, he's talking about something in the future, not now, by the way. And we know that from the first verse of chapter 4. Then he goes on. Verse 9. These elders then... Uh, let, we, need, we didn't finish verse 8, I apologize. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. And then it says, having each one a harp and a golden bowl. That is referring to the elders, not the living beings. And the reason for that is, it says each one having, it's masculine, elders is masculine, living beings is neuter. So when it's referring to this, the Greek is clear, each one having a a harp, having a golden bone, bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Who has bowls with smoke and incense and things that are prayers of the saints? Who does that? Priests. priests. And what are we? Priests. We're going to look at that in a bit. We're priests. And so he says, and they sang, these, and again, this is masculine. It's referring to the elders, not the cherubs. The cherubs aren't singing this. The elders are. We all fall down, but we're the ones that sing. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seal, for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Everybody's going to be covered. Everybody's going to be covered. And you have made them. Now, who's the them? Those that he purchased. Are the elders among the them? Yes. If you have a problem with them talking about themselves in the third person, go over to Exodus 15, when God takes Israel through the Red Sea, and when they come out, they sing a song, and they don't say, you have redeemed us. You have, they say, you have redeemed them. And they speak of themselves in the third person. Very similar to this. He says, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign over the earth. Not on the earth. Epi here would be upon, could be upon, but I believe it's over based on other scriptures. Let's turn over to chapter 1 of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. Just so that you understand, I'm not, I jumped ahead over there to chapter 5, but I already read chapter 1. So if you've read chapter 1, when you read this about these 
what they say over there, it follows what John says here. When I said that's us, it's because I knew what John said over here. And you're going to see it if you haven't already done this. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. I want, just want you to see here verse 4. He says, John to the seven churches. So John is writing. He's writing here to the seven churches. <clears throat> and then I'm going to go down to verse 6 for the sake of time. It talks about the end that he freed us, loosed us from our sins by his blood at the end of verse 5. And then verse 6. And he has made us a kingdom, priests to his God, even the Father, to him his glory and dominion forever and ever into the ages of the ages. But notice that he's made them a kingdom, priests. So this is what we are. We are priests that get to reign. You know anybody else that's a priest that gets to reign? I don't have this verse for you this morning. Give me a minute and we'll find it. Let's go to Zechariah. Let's go to Zechariah. Give me a minute to find this. This is off the top of my head, which is a dangerous thing to do, but... Zechariah chapter 6, or uh, let me see if I can find it. It's the statement that says he makes a peace between, on the throne, peace between the two offices. And where is it here? Might have to bow out of this and come back to it sometime. Hmm. Verse 13. Of? What's Zechariah 6? Zechariah 6. Zechariah 6, verse 13. Thank you. Yes, okay, so it's talking about the branch. What is Jesus Christ? He's the branch. Uh, for he will be a branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Verse 13, Zechariah 6, 13. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. He will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. What, is, what does that mean? That in the Old Testament, the priests did not come from the reigning family. The reigning family, starting way back at the time of Israel, when he when Judah comes before him, he says, with Judah, he says that the scepter shall never pass from between your feet. Your family is going to be the reigning family. Yes, now we do have Saul. We have the family of Saul at the outset. But then it's the family of Judah. Who are the priestly family? the family of Levi, and then narrowed down to the family of Aaron. Jesus Christ is the first person who will be both priest and king at the same time. And he's granted us to be priests. We've looked at that before. But he's granting us to reign with him. So guess what we are? Priests and kings at the same time. Just like Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? We're a kingdom. We're priests. Thanks for the help on that. I probably would have skirted by that. It was on the top of the next page. So, Now, back to our, our main study as we're looking at this. I want to go now to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. We've been over this. This was one of the verses we went over when we were out at Butler's back a couple months ago. I always refer to it the Butler's, but it's... Uh, I've got to find my verse here. It's the Wagner's place that, we're, that we were at. Josh and Fay are residing there. But 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12. 2 Timothy chapter 12. We've already talked about this. So I don't want to go into a ton of detail on this today. But I do think it's important 
Uh, Paul is encouraging Timothy to deal with the hardship that he's facing. He says in verse 11, it is a faithful statement that if we died with Christ, we will live with him. And all, all of these, all those ifs that you're going to read, none of these ifs is, if it's true, and maybe, maybe not. No, all of these in the Greek are certain. If you have a question on that, I can show you. I can pull out a Greek grammar and show it to you. I even got a actually a excellent commentary that I've got a surprise that the guy says these are all first class conditions. Paul assumes all of them to be true. He doesn't throw any of them into question. And so he says, if we died with him, we're going to live with him. Well, have we died with him? Yeah, if you've believed in Christ, you've died with him. No question about it. Secondly, if we are endure or if we're patient, are we patient? Well, let me ask you a question about this. Does he say that we're patient all the time? This would go back to the whole thing of earning it. Was Paul patient all the time? Was Paul, the Apostle Paul patient all the time? No. In fact, there's times that Paul argues. In fact, I always think when Paul asks three times for that thorn to be removed, after the, well, the very fact that he asked for the thorn to be gone itself shows he wasn't patient. He wanted this, I don't want to deal with this, God, take it away. And God says, no, it's good. God, no, 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 please, take it. Nope, it's, my grace is enough. Three times he asks, demonstrates he's not patient. And we got a couple other examples where you can see that Paul's not patient. When he goes into Corinth, and he's had a rough time, he had a rough time in, Thess in Philippi, a rough time in Thessalonica, a rough time in Berea, a rough time in Athens, and he gets to Corinth, and he has a rough time in the synagogue of Corinth, and he throws his hands in there, and he says, I'm done with you. My hands are clean. I'm gone. And he walks out of there, and the Lord has to say, Paul, quit holding your silence. Paul got impatient. He got frustrated, and as a result, he ended up being even afraid. See? So was the, was the Apostle Paul always this cool, level-headed? No. Makes me feel a little bit better. <laughs> I don't want to take solace in the fact that he messed up, but you know, sometimes when you see that even somebody that you really look up to struggled, it maybe is an encouragement. God will finish with me what he started. I so, That's right. If you, for those of you that maybe are listening online, if you didn't hear the, the comment out of Romans four that it says that Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but if you go back, he did waver. In fact, after one of the first promises God makes to him, he says, "How do I know that I'm going to get this?" Right after it says he believed, then it says, "How do I know?" <laughs> that, that to me sounds like he's got a big question in his mind. So he goes on here. He says, "If we then endure, or if we are patient." We shall also reign with him. It doesn't say we're perfectly patient, but we take some things patient. And specifically, I believe the patience in this context has to do with patience with regard to problems because you're a believer. As Paul's talking about, I've taken patiently some things. I've had to endure some things because of the gospel. And he says, if we've done that, We've taken, doesn't say constantly, but at least some. Hey, when Paul runs out of the, the synagogue in Corinth, that's not very patient. 
but frequently he did. I mean, the very fact that after getting beaten like he did in Philippi, he went on to Thessalonica, I'd say that was kind of patient. And then Thessalonica gets rough and he goes to Berea and he goes with the gospel again. It's I'd say, well, okay, that's pretty patient. I would have, a lot of people in the world go, Paul, I think you need to rethink your, your, your uh, mode of operation here because, boy, two times you've gotten yourself in trouble. But he gets himself in trouble again in Berea. And then he goes down and what does he do? He doesn't just take on anybody in, in Athens, but he gets down there. It's he ends up in a confrontation with, with the philosophers, with the big dogs. And that doesn't go so well. There's a few people that get saved, but most of them laugh him off the hill. And he goes to Corinth and he does it again. He goes to preach the gospel. And you would think if you would have thought about that, you would have thought, boy, I would have given up if I would have been Paul. But he kept going, which demonstrated he was patient. But then in Corinth, when the problem stirred up, then it was then, then the patience was over. <laughs> so it's showing you that, yeah, you're, there's going to be patience. But sometimes that patience has reached maybe human limit, whatever we might say. So we are going to reign. We are given authority over the nations, Revelation 2. We are given to sit with him on his throne. Revelation chapter 3. We are made a kingdom, even priests, sharing in the same type of authority that Christ has to act as priests and as kings at the same time. And then over here, he again says we're going to reign closely or jointly with him. Now with that then, I want to take on this... <clears throat> I want to go to... Um, let's go to Matthew 25. Let's go look at this passage where there are some people that uh, come to this, and I, I sort of grew up with a, uh, shall we say, watered-down variety of this, and then not too, too long after we were here, um, somebody, some, Gary and Leslie showed up at Bible study, and they showed up with a, or I'd mentioned this book, and then they said, oh, somebody had just given a copy of that to them, and they loaned it to me, and I read through the book, and uh, ended up writing a paper on that topic. Josh had Josh came to me at the same time because he was reading a book on eternal security, and this is the way that author was handling these things too. And I was just amazed that there were this many people that actually were so, were supposed to be so close to where we stand on the Word of God. I, I don't question that any of those people writing these things were unsaved. They have the gospel. They believe that. But they don't understand our future. And I honestly still think in my opinion, they overestimate what they themselves are capable of doing. I think we, which is kind of a problem. But here in Matthew chapter 25, Matthew 25, look with me beginning with verse 14. Follow along. I only have verse 30 highlighted up here and I'm not going to move through these. It says, for it is just like a man that is about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. And to one, he gave five talents. Now, a talent, by the way, and I did I put this down on my sheet here, a talent is equal to, a talent is equal to, if it's gold, about $3 million in gold, okay? So we're not talking about a little bit of money. We're talking about a lot of money, okay? So about $3 million. So one of them, he gets five talents. To another two, that would be about $1.2 million in gold, roughly. And to another one, one, which is about $600,000 in gold. So none of these guys got, in reality, just a pittance. They all got fairly sizable chunks of, of money. 
And then he went on his journey, and immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents, and in the same, the one who had received two talents gained two more, and the one who had received the one talent went away and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. And after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received five talents came and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. Say, see, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. Now, th that right there, that statement right there, I will be very honest, I think is probably one of the top reasons that pastors and teachers like to use this because it's good preaching to stand in front of a group of people like you and say, don't you really want to serve God? And don't you one day want to hear, well done, good and faithful, serve. Oh, yes, that's, I want to hear that. Uh-huh. Well, then you better get busy for God. And I've got a list of things here at church we need you to do. That's what it comes down to. Well, I know. that That's my take on it. I'm not saying that's everybody's motive. But uh, it does make for good preaching, doesn't it? So he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. The one who had received two talents came and said, Master, you entrusted to me two talents. See, I have gained two more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you had a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. I was afraid, and I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. Now again, that makes for good preaching. Do you want to hear the Lord tell you one day, You wicked and lazy slave. Is that what you want to hear? No. Nobody wants to hear that. See? So you better get busy for God. So he doesn't say that about you, right? This is what people are going to say. But notice what he goes on to say. You wicked! You knew that I reap where I do not did not sow, and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. And cast that worthless slave into outer darkness, in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's deal with that one. Outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Right here. Let's go over to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. Same book. Do you know what? The expression weeping and gnashing of teeth together only occurs in Matthew. Matthew is the only one that records this specifically. So Matthew chapter 13, and when you get to Matthew 13, I want you to go down to verse 42. Jesus is explaining some parables to his disciples, to the twelve, okay? Not to the crowds. He, he told the parables to the crowd, but the disciples only got to hear the, they're the only ones that got to hear the explanation. And he says, let's go back to verse 41. It says, And the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will cast them into a furnace of fire, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
And then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He was ears to hear, let him hear. Look down in this same passage. Uh, look down to verse 50. Again, we have a, a parable of a net, a net for catching fish, like a big net where you'd have a lot of fish behind a boat, not dipping one fish on the end of a fishing hook. I think we all understand that. And so it says in verse 49, And so it will be at the end of the age, the angels shall come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous, and they will cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I can't seem to pull up my next. I have to go over here and find it. Huh. Well, for some reason it disappeared. Because I've got a, I have one on weeping and it won't pull up. Anyway, the, the other ones we have, well, I can show you the other one here. One of the other ones. Turn to Matthew 8. I'll show you where it is. Matthew chapter 8. Give me a minute here to find this one since I don't have it here. He's talking about um, that he has healed, he's healed somebody related to a, a Gentile military official, Roman military official. And it says, uh, verse 11. Well, let's go to verse 10. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were, who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. This was, an, uh, this was a Roman military official. And he says, I, I'm, I'm with you Israelis, and I haven't found anybody that has faith as good as this, this military leader. And then he goes on, and he says, I say to you that many shall come from the east and the west, and they will recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom from the heavens. But the sons of the kingdom, that is the ones that were promised the kingdom, the ones that were supposed to get the kingdom, who was that? Israel. God promised the kingdom to them. They will be cast out into outer darkness in the place where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, they're going to be they're going to be judged. They're going to be sheep in the goat judgment, and you're going to have these people that are going to get to go to the kingdom, and they're going to be cast into the lake of fire at that juncture, and they're going to be standing there going, "What? The kingdom was ours." And they go, "No, because you guys never exhibited any faith. You never exercised any faith." And I bring you over here to show you this because right here in this book, when he uses this outer darkness and this weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, he's not talking about people that are cast outside the kingdom and they're looking in the windows going, Josh and Fair are having a party in there with Jesus and I'm out here. Oh. They're not doing that. The very fact that they're in outer darkness means they are separated from the life of God. God is light. There's no darkness in him at all. In his presence, there's light. These people are cast away from the presence of God. They don't get to look in on the kingdom and be excluded. They're out of it completely because they're in the lake of fire. And to me, it's a horrible thing that there have been people that should know better that have taken these verses that are spoken to Israel as servants of God and tried to apply them to Christians when we're not the ones that, that they're not about us. They're not about us. And they use them to make Christians afraid and they motivate Christians by fear. And again, it, this is what it comes down to. 
If you're being motivated to serve God out of fear, you need to adjust your thinking because you ought to be being motivated by the grace of God. If you are trying to serve God because you're trying to earn something for the future, because you want something better out there, or you're trying to avoid being cast into outer darkness, we maybe need to sit down and talk a little bit about what God's grace does. Titus chapter 2 says it's God's grace that trains us to say no to ungodliness and worldly lust and to live soberly righteous and godly and to live with an eager expectance for the happy hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior. He says that's a happy hope. If you're living down here with your knees knocking, it's a demonstration that you've got a spiritual issue going on. Maybe you're not saved. Maybe you haven't believed in the Jesus of the Bible. Maybe you believed in a Jesus that people talk about from the Bible, but it's not this Jesus. Mormons use this Bible, but they've got a different Jesus. There's lots of Baptists that use the Bible, but they've got a different Jesus. But there's a Jesus of the Bible who is God, eternally God, who came down to this world and became like one of us so that he could die on a cross to pay for our sins, to be buried and to rise again, so that by we believing in him alone, might have eternal life, might be forgiven, might be righteous with God for all eternity. He did it all. If I have to do something in addition to what he did, I want to know exactly like Paul says, why did he die then? Why did he die if I have to do something? Paul says he died without a, without a cause, without a purpose. If I've got to add my two cents, all I had to do is believe it. And that's not even really a word. Now, Turn with me to the last passage I want to look at here, Luke 19. Luke 19. Because this is the parallel one that this one of these individuals that I quoted referred to. Luke 19, and when you get there, let's go to verse 11. Luke 19 and verse 11. Now, I believe this is a good demonstration this passage is a good demonstration that at times Jesus tells parables that are similar, but they're not always the same. Because he's going to add some details here and leave some things out from what he had in the other parable. So verse 11, And while they were listening to these things, he went on to tell a parable because he was coming near to Jerusalem, and they were supposing that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. He knows better. He knows the kingdom of God is going to be, this kingdom they've been promising, he knows it's going to be pushed off a bit. And he said, therefore, there was a certain nobleman who went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves. Now, it's not three slaves here. Now we got ten slaves. There's a difference. His slaves. And he gave them ten minas. Now, a minus, to put this in context, ten minus would basically come down to about three years' wages. Okay. A uh, hundred minas, I'm trying to think, I put this, a mina was about a hundred days wages. So we're looking at about, be a thousand days wages, is that right? Did I do my math right? So that's a little over three years or around three years, excuse me, around three years. I probably messed my math up, but anyway. Just trying to give you a perspective. Three years wages, again, nothing to sneeze at, not as big as what the other guys got with the talents, but it's still something of some significance. <clears throat> And he said, therefore, certainly I went to a distant country, received the kingdom for himself. Verse 13. Sorry, I forgot where it was. And he called 10 of his slaves, gave them 10 minus, and said to them, do business until I come back. 
But his citizens hated him. And they sent a designation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And it came about that when he returned, after receiving the kingdom, notice after he's, they didn't want him to reign over, but he still took the kingdom, didn't he? He took the kingdom even though they didn't want him to reign. So he received the kingdom. He then ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him in order that he might know what business they had done. And the first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to them, Well done, good slave. Because you have been faithful in a very little thing, be in authority over ten cities. Now this is something that Jesus didn't give us a detail in Matthew 25. But he's actually granting people authority to reign. But it's over specific areas. And I remember hearing pastors make this, that, you know, when we're out in the future, some of us are going to be over 10 cities. You know what? I'm not going to be over 10 cities. Because based on what Jesus Christ said, I'm going to be with Jesus Christ over everything. I don't deserve that. That's called grace. But this one's going to be over 10 cities. Verse 18, and the second came saying, you're mine, master. It's made five more. And he said, you, I said to him, you are to be over five cities. And another comes saying, Master, behold, your mina, which I kept, put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man, and take up what you did not lay down, and reap where you did not sow. And he said to them, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you not know, or did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put the money in the bank and having come? I would have collected it with interest. See, so a lot of similarity to the Matthew 25, but it is a different parable. And he said to the bystanders, take that mine away from him and give it to the one with the ten minus. And they said to him, Master, but he has ten minus. And I tell you that to everyone who has shall more be given, and from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Now, one of these writers down here made reference to that, saying, oh, the slave over there, the slave over here also, same thing is said about him. He applies that statement. Because remember, he's cast in the outer darkness, and he goes, well, that's just being cut out of the kingdom and have to watch from a distance. And over here, he referred to it as slain his enemies. This is different. Who are the enemies? Those were the people when he went to the kingdom and said, we sent a de de delegation. We do not want you to reign over us. That's different than the ten slaves. It's a different group of people. You understand what he, what he, what he was talking about? One of these guys tried to say, being cast into outer darkness, oh, that's not really hell. Because over here, he talks about the slave as uh, destroying my enemies. Is that what we are as Christians then? We don't do God's will. Are we God's enemies in that way? Is that what he's trying to say? Now, granted, James does tell us, you know, when you try to make yourself a friend of the world, yeah, you constitute yourself an enemy of God, but... We just put this together here. I know I've kept you a little bit longer maybe than you were expecting, but I hope you get this picture. We reign with him. And these statements, these parables that Jesus tells over here in Matthew 25 and in Luke 19, these parables are not talking about us. They're talking about God's work with the people Israel. And he's talking about them with regard to the nation. And in particular, I really believe it's going to come down to judging them with regard to how they function during 
Daniel's 70th week or what we popularly call the tribulation period. Because remember what he does when he judges even the nations, the sheep and the goats? He judges them by how they took care of the sick and the hungry and the imprisoned. That's what he's, And that's talking about how they handled the Jews during the, during the tribulation period. Did they care for those people? Or the 144,000, those 144,000 that apparently are going to get thrown in jail for their testimony. Did you witness, did you go and, and, and spend time with them because they shared that good news with you? Or did you keep your distance from them? I mean, Paul says that over in Hebrews 13. He says even Christians did that. He says, you weren't afraid to be associated with prisoners, prisoners who were imprisoned for the name of Christ, not because they held up a bank. <laughs> Talking about prisoners who were prisoners because of the cause of Christ. People who were sick because they got sick. They, they, Epaphroditus in Philippians 2, they, they, they hazard their life. They throw their life on the line to give out the gospel. There are some similarities in that. But we don't earn the right to reign. We don't earn the right to inherit anything. Our inheritance, as we've been looking at over the last uh, few weeks, our inheritance is by grace. We started that out the very first day. It is based upon the grace of God. And if uh, you can go back and, well, we don't have these, we don't have any place to post these right now, sorry, messages, but you can maybe find the notes back there. Ask me and I can try to show that to you. Now, next week, the plan is we've got one, I've got one more study I want to look at on inheritance where we're going to come back and we're going to deal with, I believe, one hard passage at least that maybe turns this thing on its ear. It doesn't, but it does if you just take that passage in isolation and we're going to look at that passage because I've had one person that threw this out to me some time back and uh, I want to deal with that. If you have any questions on this Bible study this morning with regard to our future, um, take those when we're done here after we pray. If not, I trust that you're encouraged to think about your future as one that's going to get to sit with Christ on his throne and reign with him. You look at yourself right now, and if you're like me, you go, I don't know how that's going to be possible. I am such a joker. And God says, I ain't done with you yet. I am not done with you. Just wait until you see what you're like when I'm finished. <laughs> that is something to think about. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we are thankful for the fact that the work that has been begun in us is continuing and it will be carried out right until the day that your son Jesus Christ returns for us. And when you are finished with us, we will be people with whom your son can share his reign. And help us to be those that look forward to that. Help us to be those that, like Paul, can say, that we're going to receive a crown of righteousness because we have lived with a love and expectation for your son's soon return for us. Thank you for this time together and ask that you might encourage us in whatever you set before us in the remainder of this day. Thank you. Amen. Hey, Clayton.